Amen. Oh man, it's so good to worship the Lord like that. What a, I, I really appreciate those last two songs in particular that we sang because what an amazing thing. I don't know if you're like me, like my favorite worship songs are the ones where I feel like I'm just pleading, like just pouring myself out to God, those kind of almost anthems, if you will, like that, Lord, I need you, I need you. Um, if you're like me, you're beyond aware of your weaknesses and your shortcomings and your failures and just to be able to come together with the people of God and just cry out, Lord, I need you. But then to follow that up and be reminded of our standing before the throne of God because of the righteousness of Christ, that no tongue can bid us depart, that our, our standing is secured, not because we actually have it together. On the contrary, we have huge needs, but that our standing before God is eternally secure because Jesus has no needs, because Jesus has no weaknesses, because Jesus was strong when we are weak. Man, there's no better worship than that. Amen? Amen. Oh, God, we thank you so much for that reminder. Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, we, we know who we are in ways that even no one else in this place knows. God, we're aware of the, the dark places of our soul, the frailties, the fears, the temptations, the weaknesses. But God, so are you. And yet you chose to send your son or to fill in those gaps, to do what we could not do, to pay the penalty for our sin, to rise from the grave and defeat death, and that then you would, Lord, bid us to follow you, that you would stand in our defense before the throne of God, that we would become the justified, righteous people of God, and even more so that you would adopt us into your family. Praise you, Lord. Thank you so much for that reminder. I pray, God, that as we open up your word, that you would encourage people this morning. I pray, God, that you would convict where needed this morning. I pray, God, that we would be humble, bowed before your throne, even in the posture of our hearts as we open your word, that we might, Lord, allow your word to have its way with us. So, Lord, will you be our teacher? As Sam said, Jesus, you are our pastor, you are our teacher. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would be in this place, would blow through this place, would, would awaken us, Lord, to an understanding of your truth and a further and greater realization of how amazing you are. And I pray, God, that your will would be done, your kingdom come in this place as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said? Amen. Hey, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. While you're doing that, I have a couple of a quick announcements. Um, <clears throat> first of all, next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. at the Hub, at the office right over here where the kids tend to get dropped off and everything, we're having a new to heritage kind of breakfasty sort of meeting. Um, we've never really done this before, but we're going to make this sort of a quarterly thing to really just provide people opportunity who are new to the church to come in, to meet the staff, to, to hear about what's going on, to hear our history, to hear um, what the mission of the church is, what the needs of the church are, and, and those sorts of things. And so this, since this is our first one, and some of you might have been here for a long time and not know those things, then you still fall under the category of new to heritage, and we would love to have you next week. Uh, Kathy, is there a sign-up for this, by the way, over there? It would be helpful to us if you would sign up and let us know if you're going to be able to come just so we can make sure there's enough food for everybody. Um, but we're really looking forward to the chance to just meet you, to put faces with names, uh, to be able to field questions that you might have about the church. 
um, and all of those things. We'd really love to, to do that for you guys next week. Um, so that's at 9 a.m. this coming Saturday. Um, also, later that day, um, some, some people have been asking me about this. My, my wife's grandmother, um, Ruth Susley, passed away about a week ago. We have had quite the month in, in our family. It really has been. You guys know that my wife's been in and out of the hospital. She's good. She's here at church back this Sunday, first time. We're very happy about that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. People were starting to question. They're like, Jeff's wife must be a heathen. She never comes to church. I'm like, well, she is, but she, it's not why she's not coming. Um, and so am I. <laughs> Man, just can't get them back in. Those words, they just, <sighs> Lord, I need you. Oh, I... Anyway. <laughs> So uh, my wife's grandmother actually did uh, pass away. It, it, it's a sad thing because we're going to miss her, but it's a good thing too. She lived a long, fruitful life. She loved Jesus. And um, next Saturday, we're having a memorial service here at 1 o'clock. A lot of you guys knew her. It's a real strange thing. I could be wrong on this, but I was trying to think back. Um, we're almost six years old now. I can only think of one other, off the top of my head anyway, memorial service that we've done for a, a, a normal or a regular congregate of our church. We've done tons of baby dedications, and we've done tons of weddings and all those sorts of things. But um, dear Jack Ellis, my good buddy, um, is, from my recollection, the only person who was a normal, regular congregant um, who's gone on to be with Jesus um, and so this week will actually be our second, which is an amazing thing. Um, but we're going to be getting together here at 1 o'clock to just celebrate um, Ruth's life and, uh, and to be able to love on the family and everyone. And so a lot of you guys were asking about that, and we'd love to have you if you want to join us. Um, tonight, huddle groups meeting throughout the valley. Really excited. We have three brand new huddle groups all launching tonight. Um, officially anyway. And so we're really excited about that. Um, Sam Peck, our worship pastor, who was just up here in front of you guys, he's leading a group for 20s-ish is mostly uh, the kind of the, em the emphasis of that particular group. You can ask him what ish means, and I'll let him take the heat for that. Um, also, Mike Wright. Uh, Mike Wright has a group of people that the, the makeup tends to be people with teenage kids, and they're looking for ways that they can even integrate the youth into the huddle meetings and just things like that, so that's exciting. Um, and then Pete Ulrich also has just started a new huddle group. Where, where are you at, Pete? I saw you somewhere. There's Pete right there. Is Mike Wright here? There's Mike in the back. Can you guys stand up, Pete, Mike, and, and everybody, just so they can see it, just real quick. They'll forget soon, don't worry. So, and then Sam, who was here just a minute ago. Um, in addition to that, I encourage you, go to our website, heritagefellowship.net. There's a whole roster of where the different groups are tonight. Um, our huddle groups are, the intention of our huddle groups is where you're building um, deep and genuine spiritual relationships with one another and kind of um, getting together to talk about, okay, so Jeff said this stuff this morning, how does that play out in our lives and how does that play out amongst one another as we're building community together? So really encourage you guys to get involved there or find more information on our website. Um, this one's not as popular, at least in the short term. Next week is Daylight Savings. So next week's the bad one, right? I mean, it's bad that we lose sleep. It's good that we get better daylight later. But, but next week, we lose an hour, right? So that means set your clock forward, right? Just want to make sure. I have an iPhone. They do it all for us now. <clears throat> so um, we just do that. Um, and uh, that's enough. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, does anyone not have one and need one by chance? Anyone? I don't see any hands up. Use your phone. Use something. We'd love that you can follow along with us. 
Um, we've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12 here for a few weeks, 1 Corinthians in general for quite a while, um, looking at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. It's a church that, as, as our image up here on the screens projects, um, had completely gotten off track. Paul had planted this church five years previously. Now he's moved on to start another church. And in the meantime, instead of the church infiltrating the culture for the gospel of Jesus Christ and becoming this manifestation of Jesus in light of a, a pagan culture, what they had done is they had brought in influences from the pagan culture into the church. And they'd gotten completely off track with who they were supposed to be. Um, a church that was intended to be unified in doctrine, unified in spirit, and, and then diverse in makeup and form and function had gotten everything completely the opposite. They were divided over doctrine, and the diversity that God had intended within the church, they were squashing it. They were saying, no, only these people are important, and these people aren't, and only these gifts matter, and those gifts don't. And, and the result was incredible chaos, and it's not what God intended. And so Paul finds out about this, and he writes this letter to the church in Corinth to address those issues. And here in chapter 12, one of the things we've been looking at, it's a passage that tends to get most of its notoriety or attention for being a text that's about the spiritual gifts. And it is. It's one of the more um, complete texts that we have about the spiritual gifts. It's definitely about that. But that is not the primary emphasis. If you really were to put a label over it, a better heading other than spiritual gifts would be the body of Christ. Because the idea is that the people of God are assembled together in the church to make up, to be the body of Christ. In the same way that when Jesus came to earth to accomplish his work, he was given a, a body of flesh and blood. Now to accomplish his work in the world around us, Jesus' his body is made up of people. It's the church. And so we've already seen how there are many parts that make up the body of Christ. These parts differ from one another. Um, but that the fact that they differ, and this is going to be a lot of the emphasis today, the fact that they differ in no way diminishes their unity or their value. That's the intent. So last week, we spent most of our time just laying the foundation about the church and talking about the reality that we have been saved individually but into a collective that when we are saved, this individualistic notion that that's, it's uniquely American in a lot of ways, that's sort of that whole spirit of the wild west, you know, make your own way, I can do it kind of attitude that's very American in so many ways, um, really does not represent the mission, the goal, the intention of the church so much. That in the church, you're saved individually, but you become part of the collective that is made up the body of Christ. And this individualistic attitude towards the church that was happening in Corinth can be really dangerous. And, and in our culture, when you take an individualistic approach to our, our faith and to Christianity, and you couple that with a very prevalent consumeristic attitude in our culture, where instead of us existing to serve others, everything else exists to serve us, and so it's a kind of a restaurant attitude towards everything. Bring me my food, what I want. Give me what I ordered. Get it here on time. If you don't like it, I'm not going to tip you and I'll go to a different place. When you couple those kind of things together within the church, bad things happen. It, it does not portray or really manifest, as the word Paul uses, the body of Christ to the world. Because that's the purpose of the church. That's why he calls it that. The church becomes the body of Christ so that though Christ is in body, not here on earth walking anymore, he has put his power, his spirit into us and drawn us together as the church 
for the purpose of manifesting Christ to the world around us. That's why he says things in Matthew chapter 5, like let them see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That when we do these things, it should be something that reminds people of Jesus, not us. So an individualistic approach to this undoes everything that God intends with these things. But what happens is, and especially in our culture today, there's a lot of people that don't really have a real good understanding of what it means to belong to much of anything. We really don't. We, have a, we're, we live in a time of real loose connections, more connections than we've ever had, thanks to technology. But shallow connections, loose connections, nothing nearly as genuine and, and nearly as deep and as rich as what God had intended in the church, for sure. And, and then couple that with the reality that we've had the family breakdown in our society. So for the very first thing that someone should feel that they're a part of should be the family. And now we've had the family breakdown in our culture. And so people don't have that to pull from. And just a lot of people just tend to go through life not really understanding what it means to belong to anything. And so then they come into the church, and that same attitude comes. And so what we end up doing is just kind of changing churches the way we change grocery stores. And, and often for the same reasons. I don't like the chips over there. I want them over there. I don't like the self-checkout lines because there's never any people over there serving me. I want to go somewhere else. Or I just happen to be over here today. I think I'll go to this store, or I'll go over here this other way. And that's not the intention of the church. But it is the cultural mindset. We're Americans, after all. America. We have the right. We have the right. We have freedom. We have the right to do anything we want, to go anywhere we want. That's the country we live in. And so therefore, it is really important that we within the church who desire to be followers of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that we understand this passage well. Specifically, verse 27, where he kind of summarizes it by saying, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You're not yourself. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. You are now the body of Christ. And so we here come together and we read beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then it goes on. If the foot should say, because I am a hand, I do not belong to the body. Now Paul's going to start to get into some of the minutia. A helpful background for this particular passage is one that Peter draws us to. That's a very similar in its function and form, but gives us a, another good picture. Again, this is one of the most famous analogies or metaphors, I should say, that Scripture has regarding what it looks like to be a Christian. It's, it's the metaphor or the picture of the body. There's hands, there's feet, everything connected under the head, the head being Christ. Peter gives us sort of the same picture, but he talks about us with regards to a building. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, as you come to him, Jesus. In other words, when you're saved, when you come to Jesus, the living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he says, when you are saved, when you come to Jesus, you are, again, as we've been talking, an individual. But what Jesus is doing is he's not just saving you, he's collecting you. It really is. 
Jesus is not only saving people, but he's collecting them. God is not just the creator, he's the architect and the contractor. And what he's doing is fitting people together as stones, building, as he refers to it, a living house of worship, where sacrifices of praise and offerings can be made to God that are acceptable to him. So we haven't just been saved, we've been brought into the family of God, part of a collective. We're being fit together, rough edges chiseled away, all the different parts. Some people are two by fours, some are two by sixes, some are screwy, I mean screws, some are drywall, some are all those different things being fit together. God, in other words, God's working on something. God's building something. And you're not just saved and then you just kind of ramble along through life, oh willy-nilly. What God is doing is pulling everyone together and he's, he's the creator He's the architect. He's the contractor. And it says in verse 18, of, I'm jumping all over, I know, but in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, it says specifically along the same lines, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So track with me. God saved you. He brought you into a collective. He has a plan. He's putting things together. And Paul says, and he's arranged you, arranging you as he so chooses. So he's working on something. He's the mastermind. He's the one putting things together. And that means that the reason that we're in this room, the reason that we're here together, Heritage Christian Fellowship, those that would say, that's my church, the reason that we're here is not because we share similar interests. It is not because we live in the same neighborhood or in the same city. It is not because of any of those things. The reason that we are here is because God in his infinite divine wisdom is building something. And he has chosen to choose you, to save you, to put you into this particular framework. He's chosen to bring all of us together for a specific purpose because he's building something. This is what he's defining as the church. The church isn't the walls of the building. The church is the people. And he's assembling everyone, as he says. He's arranging the members as he so chooses. He's the creator, the architect, the builder, and the power plant. And so for us to be able to function together as the church of God, or specifically as the body of Christ, it's important that we understand how God has designed and arranged each part um, and understand that everyone here has a role to play and that everyone's role matters. Everyone's role matters. I say it again, everyone's role here matters. Every person. So... With that understanding, our responsibility then, when we see these things in the scripture, is our responsibility is to say no to isolationism, to understand that we're not saved to be isolated, but that we have been saved that we might come together in the body of Christ for participation, to participate in the mission of God and with the people of God as the body of Christ. That's, what, that's really the summary. We could stop now, actually. I'm going to talk for a while now just rambling on about other things. But if you plan on checking out, at least get that part. Our responsibility is to avoid or resist the tendency for isolation and instead to participate with one another. Now, clearly this is what's been going on in Corinth. Now, it seems weird where you go, well, but look, I'm, I'm not isolating. Like, I may not get involved in a lot of things or whatever, but I'm not isolated. I'm here. Well, 
we tend to define isolation or think of isolation in, in terms of someone who's isolated, they're home by themselves, they don't like crowds, they're not going to come out anywhere, they're not going to be a part of anything we're doing, they're just going to stay home, don't want to be around groups. And, and that would be true. But there's another form of isolation that can actually happen within the group when someone just comes, sits, take in, but disengages from the mission, disengages from the teaching, disengages from the people. So you can be here amongst the body of Christ, but not actually be connected to any of the body of Christ and be completely isolated from what God has for us to do. And, and I want to address that today. I want to push against that today. I want to challenge you to even think and pray, am I isolated, God? Am I a functioning part of the body of Christ? Or am I sort of a lone ranger that looks Christian, looks like he's part of something because I'm part of the crowd at the church, but, and even Wednesday night we talked about the fact that just being part of a crowd doesn't make you a disciple. Judas was part of a great crowd. It didn't make him a follower of Jesus. And so clearly this is the issue that's been going on in Corinth. When you read through the passage, we can see that people have become discouraged and that division has occurred where there should be unity. And Paul gives us two particular insights as to the core or the cause, excuse me, of some of the isolation that has happened and the division that has occurred. And they're actually portrayed pretty clearly. The two things are this. Isolation can be caused by feelings of inferiority or feelings of superiority. Either one of those. And they're both portrayed quite clearly in the passage. So let's take them one at a time. The first one is inferiority. The attitude that says, I'm not needed. They don't need me. I'm not good enough. I don't have really anything that they would benefit from. Um, I don't really need to be a part. I, they have everything covered. And they're so much better at all this than me. Then what do, what do I have to offer? That kind of attitude. Well, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 15 says, If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ears should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the body, whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So if this idea being, ah, they don't really need me, it's an inferiority complex. I've seen this big time in Uganda. Uganda is just awful with it, just filthy with it. Because in Uganda, there's been a huge influence of prosperity theology that says that the sign of you being uh, a recipient of favor from God is wealth. And so here's what happens. You have a place that has no resources, no wealth, none of those things. And in comes the American mission team. And the American mission team has wealth. They have uh, the ability even just to travel there. They teach the word in a way that a lot of the Ugandans don't because we have resources and study and education that many of them don't. And what has happened, if you're not careful when you go over there to do missions work, though your intention can be good, you can leave that place and actually cause the people to struggle more after you leave than before you came. And we've seen where this has happened in a lot of different instances, not, not because of our mission teams, but we've come across people who that's been their experience previous to us coming. And they end up with a huge inferiority complex because they feel like really the only people that can teach the word are the wealthy white people who God really loves. And then the result of that becomes not just an inferiority complex and a pity party, but envy and animosity and anger, even hatred towards the white people that come into Uganda. We see it all the time when we go over there. 
Our, our mission when we go over there tends to be to try to build up the pastors of the church in Uganda and let them do the ministry work because this is what they face all the time. And we don't want to be the big white man show that blows into town and does a big huge thing and then leaves and everybody's like, well, just back to boring old church now, I guess. That's not, that wouldn't help them or serve them in any way, but that happens all the time. This attitude that says we're not very special, and it happens here too, maybe not over wealth, but over giftings, talents, abilities, even friendships within the church. And so we can get the attitude that says, well, I'm not that special. I don't really have that much to offer. Man, Jeff, he's the pastor and he's a teacher and he's studied this stuff and all that. So he's got a great gift. I mean, and a lot of people respect him and he stands up front and gets all that attention, but I don't have anything like that. So... I don't really have anything to offer. And it kind of looks like they have things covered. That's a huge lie. But it just seems like everything's together and covered, and I don't really have anything to offer. It's okay. The, the sad thing is, and I'm, I'm going to build you up in just a second, but can I tear you down just a little bit more first? The heart of that is pride. The heart of an inferiority complex is pride because it's self-focus. It's the same thing. And, and we see it, again, we see it in Uganda all the time. It's amazing. Some of the most materialistic people that I have ever met are Ugandans that have nothing because they obsess over it. That becomes the desire of their heart. And so in the same way that someone here who has everything can only live for those things, there's people that have nothing and have the same thing. The same thing happens with pride. So you can become a prideful person that just walks around and thumps your own chest. That's really obvious. Everybody sees that kind of pride, and everybody hates that kind of pride. But there's still another sort of pride that self-obsesses, and so kind of the Eeyore mentality. They always leave me out. I have nothing to offer. I'm stuck in the tree again. That was poo, right? <laughs> Whatever. Woe is me. And it's self-obsession. But, but even more so, listen, understand something. It is verbalizing discontent with the plan of God. That's a real problem. Because we look at it as if it's only a comparison between us and someone else. And we tend to, in that moment, leave God out of the equation. But what you're doing is you're expressing discontent with what God's plan is for you, with his design for you, your function within the church, what he's given you. Because God's the gift giver, not man. So if there's a gift that you esteem that you don't have, and then you go into the woe is me on my end, like, well, I just don't have anything to offer, your complaints against the gift giver. And what ends up is there's discontent, envy, division, all of these kinds of things, and we can end up spending a ton of time and emotion really trying to undo what God has done in his plan and in his infinite wisdom, can't we? Or at least wishing we could. How many of you guys grew up in Sunday school or VBS, singing that classic, classic song. If I were a butterfly, I'd thank you, Lord, that I could fly. If I was a fuzzy, wuzzy bear, I'd thank you, Lord, for my fuzzy, wuzzy hair. But I just thank you, Father, for making me, me. Only they know it. <laughs> Sam, put that on the worship rotation. For you gave me a heart, you gave me a smile, you gave me Jesus, and you made me his child, and I just thank you, Father, for making me me. And Christians of all people should be able to come to terms with who we are. Christians of all people 
Because it is a human nature tendency, right? We, we have a hard time sometimes accepting who we are in life. We tend to think of ourselves when we have our own mental pictures of who we are in different versions than who we actually are. So, it, for example, if you're young, I guarantee you, in your daydreaming, you think of yourself in the job that you're going to have one day or the relationship that you're going to have one day. Like when you paint a mental picture of you, but it's this future version of you that you haven't quite got to yet, and you set your focus on that. And if you're old, oh man, you think of yourself at least 15 years ago in your mind, don't you? And 25 pounds ago. Have you ever been to a City League softball game before? Oh my. Someone asked me once, can we do a church team? Can we do a heritage softball team? And I said, never, never, never. Because what, what do you have? You have a group of guys. I love you guys, but this is true. You need to hear this, all right? Wives do that. But listen, what tends to happen is you have a bunch of guys that are just trying one more time to relive the glory days. And they get uber competitive, and they still picture themselves as that high school kid with the letterman's jacket scoring the game winning touchdown. Right? I love what Matt Chandler said. He's like, look, you need to go home. Get out your leather jacket, your, your letterman jacket, give it a really big hug, and then put it away forever. <laughs> okay, he's gone. <laughs> All right? He ain't coming back, he's gone. But it is true. It is human nature. We have a hard time coming to terms with who we are. And so let me ask you, and I'm not talking about this, this self-esteem, just be all that you can be, and, and that we need to realize that we are the greatest thing since sliced bread everywhere. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about have you been able to come to terms with who you are, who God made you to be, what God's called you to do, what God has not called you to do, and to be able to put peace and faith and trust and just say, I trust God in what he's called me to do. Yeah, I have prideful tendencies. I wish I could sing. It was great having our friend Megan here visiting us from Edgewater here just singing just a little while ago. It'd be so easy for me to go, oh, I wish I could just sing like that. But God's just given me a different calling. God has just something different for me to do. And that's a difficult thing. It's so easy, too. You could say, well, but Jeff, that's so easy for you to say because you're the pastor. You get all the attention. I'm just a foot. All right, let's do a little exercise. Everybody right now, slide your foot out from under the seat in front of you so you can look at your foot. Everybody look at your foot. And I want you to do something. I want you to take your foot and pull your car keys out of your pocket. Go. Some of you are trying, and I really appreciate that. You even know you're not going to get it, but you're still trying, right? It's a different function. It does not fit in that form. It becomes useless in that situation. But... When the sermon's over, try walking out of here on your elbows. Different function. I need my keys. Well, I don't need the foot for that right now. But I'm going to need my foot in just a few minutes. There's different functions, different roles, but they're all needed. That's why he says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. There's just a lot of different parts make up the body. 
And look, there's no appendix in the body of Christ. Can I just say that? There's none of those organs, all those different ones that you can just get rid of and you don't need anymore. All the parts are arranged, remember this, arranged by God into the body of Christ for a specific purpose with a specific mission that God has called us to do. And we all have a part to play and our identity is not found in those individual things, but our identity is find as the, or found as the truth that we are the collected people of Christ who have been saved by Jesus, who is the head. I mean, you, you don't send selfies. Let's talk about selfies. You guys know that's the dictionary word of the year. Did you know that? Selfies, that whole thing like that. This angle here, girl, just stop, please. But anyway, the, selfies. Okay, so if, some, if you said, I'm going to send you a picture of myself, no one just takes a picture of their hand and sends it because that's not what you are recognized or identified by, correct? So too, our identity is not in the individual parts, but our identity is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we find our security. That's where we find our worth. That's where we find our value. And when we're looking at Jesus, when we're beholding his face, instead of worrying about what individual little parts do or don't do, that's when we find contentment. That's when we can come to terms with who we are. Because when you realize how amazing Jesus is and what he did to bring you onto his team, you'll take any role he'll give you. You're just glad to be on the team. That's when humility comes in. So the first one is this. The first thing that can cause us to become isolated within the body of Christ um, is an inferiority complex. The other end is superiority. So if inferiority is saying, they don't need me, then a superiority is saying, I don't need you. You don't have anything to offer me. You don't have anything to bring to the table. I, I benefit really nothing. I don't, we can get along just fine without you. And we see it here in the scriptures. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed, there it is again, he's composed it. He's arranged the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Clearly, there are some within the Corinthian church that were really puffed up with pride and believed that only certain people, only certain gifts, only certain things mattered. We could do without the rest of you. Remember, if you track back months ago, it's been since we've talked about this, um, there was a fascination with different giftings and abilities that were on display big time. You had um, the, the Greek philosophy was really important and big time at that point, and they had the traveling, they're referred to as sophists, and they would travel around and do these speeches and these lectures and just wow people with their knowledge. And, and so then when Paul comes around and Apollos comes around and Peter's teaching, the people in the church divided over that, oh, he's better, oh, he's better. And they clearly had this thing where they would celebrate certain gifts and certain positions that seemed to get all the attention, and then they would just sort of push down those that we just don't really need that guy, we don't need that, oh, you're cute, but just have a seat, we'll get to you if we're ahead by 100 at the end of the game. But other than that, we don't really need you. Um, and, and this has happened in the church. And sometimes it's vile. Sometimes it's, I don't like you. I don't like what you have to offer. That's stupid. Sometimes it's vile. Usually it's not. Usually it's more subtle. Um, I'll tell on myself here. 
Um, when, when our church began, and when we, we first were forming the church, and, and I was getting guys that were coming, they were saying they were coming to the church, and we're going to come and help out, and trying to form leadership, and going through all that stuff, I tended to surround myself, or raise up, if you will, leaders that had a lot of similar things like me, that kind of saw the world the way I did. Um, there, there's a thing, Sam actually even used this in his prayer, used this model, um, but there's kind of a church leadership model that's based on the role of Jesus Christ when he was here and, and well, even still, that Jesus fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices Jesus fulfilled. And, and a lot of church ministry and church leadership gets broken down into one of those three categories. And so for me, my strength tends to be in the prophet and priest category. So the prophet is the Bible nerds. Um, read a lot of old books, love theology, and love preaching, and getting riled up while you teach the word, that kind of thing. And then you have the, the priest part, which is more the, I want to get together with people, I'm highly relationally motivated, having a heart for others, let's get together, talk, have coffee, have lunch, that sort of thing. And that tended to be the majority of people that I spent my time with and that I ended up just by default drawing into the leadership role. Um, well, what I ignored unintentionally at first was the, 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 the aspect or the, the office, if you will, of king. So that's the organizer, the leadership, the administration, those sorts of things. So here's what happened. We had a lot of people that knew the word and were relationally motivated, but we didn't have people in leadership roles to be able to put the structure in place that would manage growth. And so as the church began to grow... We didn't have things in place to make sure people were grafted in. I mean, here we are, we're six years in, we're finally doing a new members thing, right? So um, that's kind of the way it was. And so we would start to notice that people would come in and then they weren't really getting grafted in the way that we thought they should. And then they would sort of slip out the back of the door because no one was there to kind of throw an arm around them. And so for me, I look at the world as a very relational guy and I'm like, I don't see why that's a problem. Just say hi to somebody. But for other people, it's not that easy. Some people have a hard time reaching out in that sort of way. Other people, they need to see on a form, here's the date, here's the time, here's when they're getting together, and here's the purpose of that. And so what happened is, is that there were some dear friends of mine here in the church that, are, that do see the world through that role, and they would come to me and they would say, Jeff, we don't have an organizational flow chart. And I was like, we don't have a Ferrari either. We don't need either. Because <laughs> I didn't see the world like that. And then another guy would come up, and, and in my mind, it wasn't intentional, but it's there, I'll confess it. In my mind was, I know what we need. I know what we need. I've been doing this pastor thing for a little while now, and, and I know what we need. And we're growing fine, we're doing okay, I know what we need. But here's what I end up doing in that moment. I'm pridefully saying that this is all we need, and I, your gifts, they're all nice and cute, but use those at staples. This is the church, and I know better than you. That's the attitude. And then you fast forward and I'm drowning in work. Nothing's organized and I can't figure out why. Right? That's a superiority complex. That's something that the Lord's really been working in me, continuing to work in me. Um, I was just talking to my friend Carmine just the other day and he was talking about getting together with some guys to do some stuff like that. And I said, you know what? I'll come. Here's what I think my role should be. I'll come. I'll sit off to the side with my Kindle and I'll just, I'll just read. And if you guys need a question, you're like, hey, who's in charge of this? I'll just tell you. But you guys do what God has called you to do. Because if I don't see the problem, I'm certainly not the one to fix it. Amen? It's true. When you take a superiority complex that says, 
me and my ilk are the ones that really matter and I don't need everyone else, then you're undoing what God has purposefully and in his wisdom combined and put together as the body of Christ. And it's pride. Pride has tore down more ministry than any of the more notable sins such as lust or things like that. It really has. And it leads to division. It leads to all those things. And the result is, if we don't do those sorts of things, the result is, is we might grow, but we'll only grow to a point. We might get a lot of certain things together, but we'll only get so far. And people that come in and don't see the world like I do won't feel like they have a place to fit in here. And so we'll have sticking points and growth barriers and frustrated people. And the whole time I'm going, but I don't see it. Well, you're not an eye, Jeff. That's why. You're a nose. But the intention is, is that God is pulling people together with different giftings, different talents, different abilities to fill in for the gaps that we all need. But the danger is, like we talked about Wednesday night, excellence hides need. And so if you have a gift that you're growing in and it gets attention and all those things and you start to get puffed up, you can forget that, hey, there's some holes over here. Or you can, what my issue was is, I'll, I'll take care of it, I'll take care of it. Or people-pleasing tendencies that say, besides, I'm, I'm the one they hired, I'm the one that has to do this and I don't want to put that burden on you. Even that's prideful because now I'm saying I can take care of it and I'm addressed, I'm killing myself trying to do all the work and then there's other people that are part of the body of Christ that have nothing to do and they're frustrated because I keep doing it wrong. It's just true. So the Lord's been working in my heart in that. He's continuing to work in my heart in that. Um, and he needs to work in all of our heart on these things about superiority when it comes to looking at others within the body of Christ. Because we tend, here's the thing, it's just a comparison game really, isn't it? And what we tend to do is when we're looking at one another within the body of Christ and when we get drawn into those sorts of things, how we look at one another and value one another, we're usually not using biblical resources or biblical value systems when we assign value on one another. We're usually using the ones that the world values. And so what we do is, is we go, man, that guy has a mega church with 10,000 people. Man, that guy is on it, and we esteem him. That guy is an incredible worship leader. He's putting albums out. He's awesome, and we esteem him. And so we look to those people who are the front line, the ones that get all the attention, the one that everyone sees, and those are the ones that we look at as being valuable and important, and we can't do without you in the Christian movements. It's one of the reasons we get so worked up when an athlete says, I'm a Christian. We're like, they become our hero, Tim Tebow. Can't throw. <clears throat> sorry. Frustrated Bronco fan, I'm sorry. No Peyton Manning jokes right now. I'm, it's the wounds are still fresh. I just want you to know, okay. <laughs> But, it's, but that's what we do. And so, here, so what we do is we look at the megachurch guy, and we're like, man, look what he's doing for God. But if we use a scriptural model to evaluate these things, doesn't Jesus turn all that stuff over on his head when he points at this woman who's dirt poor and comes into a temple and gives just two mites? And he says, she gave more than anybody. And when we see, even in the Old Testament, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so even in, let's use the analogy here. Let's talk about the body in general. What are the parts that get all the attention? If you're a gym rat, it's biceps. That's all anyone wants, biceps. If I had huge arms, I could rule the world. That's kind of everybody's attitude. I know some of you do it right. Arm day, leg day, back day, we hate you. But the, other than that, <laughs> most people just want big arms, right? That's what they want. But you know what? You can live without an arm. Right? We just had a guy run in the Olympics with no legs. 
Try it without a liver. Try it without a kidney. That changes stuff. And those are the parts of the body, they're not seen. They're kind of covered up. They don't enter into our minds so much. And yet, what is it that Paul says about them? Paul says about them here that they are, verse 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. So, so for me, I'm in the position here at the church that gets the attention. I'm in the position where people know who I am even when I don't know who you guys are. And it would be really easy for me to get puffed up with pride or for you to assign that, like, let's elevate that guy as that's the guy that's really important here. But the reality is Western Seminary, where I go to school, is full of guys right now just chomping at the bit. I could be replaced like that. It's just the truth. Like that. There is teaching available on your podcast infinitely better than what I am gifted to do. I can be replaced like that. But, but there's people in the church that are deep in the guts, in the belly of the church, if you will, that are ministering to one another, that are making meals for people when they're sick. There's this one couple here, I really want to say their name, but I'd probably get in trouble for it, so I'm not. But there, there's this one couple here, probably among the quietest people in the entire church. And I'm telling you, I cannot tell you how many times that I find out someone in our church is in the hospital and they beat me all the time. I show up, they're walking back out. I'm like, how did you even know? Holy Spirit. I don't, I, I don't know how they do it. It's just like bat signal goes up and they just go. But they, they just know. And then even last week, last week, there was a memorial service for a friend of mine. Her grandfather died and it was last Sunday night. And so I, I told my wife, I, I think we should go and I'm going to go over to the memorial service. And I walk in and there they sit. I didn't even know how they know. I still don't even know if they know him at all. I, honestly, I'm starting to suspect they just go around to funerals in the hospital all the time. They just, you know, scatter seed everywhere. Maybe one will take. I think that might be what they do. But, but see, here's the thing, though. That's what makes it church. Be because they teach at Western Seminary, but that's not a church. And you can teach at seminars. And you can teach at rallies. And you can listen to teaching while you run on the treadmill of the gym. But that's not church. And what we need to do and ask God for and try to cultivate is a greater and greater appreciation for one another for whatever they have. And I pray that we can even grow as a church, probably organizationally with my friends helping me with that so that there are avenues created to make sure that those who seem to be the weaker gifts, as Paul refers to it, have opportunity to plug in and fill in the gaps because no one here is complete. It's just the bottom line. No one here is a rock star before God. There's only one. There, there's a great story that I want to use to, uh, to picture this. I think they have. Do you guys have the pictures for that? Um, so you're going to have to forgive me. It's a North Carolina Tar Heel basketball story. But it's the best story that I know. Um, to, can you put that picture? No, not the, that, uh, the other one. Okay. So in 1992, 1993, I lived in Chapel Hill. And North Carolina was, they won the national championship actually that year. They were a really, really good ball team. And um, this is the cover of the program guide that went out to all the press and to everybody at the beginning of the season. And inside that magazine introduced the team. And so that's the, the program people would buy when they come to the stadium. And it was that same cover for every game. 
And there's a basketball analyst, uh, analyst who, praise God, has since retired. His name's Billy Packer. And he literally called out North Carolina's head coach, Dean Smith. And it became a known story, but that he went to Dean Smith and he was like, why did you put, why did you put Travis Stevenson and Scott Cherry on the cover of your program guide? See this dude in the middle? Red hair, huge ears, Scott Cherry. And the guy on the far left, Travis Stevenson, they're walk-ons. They weren't recruited. They weren't wanted by a lot of people. They were students who tried out for the team. And most of the walk-ons on a basketball program like this are only there so you have somebody to practice against. That's really it. The odds of you making an impact on a team full of people that are about to make millions in the NBA are almost non-existent. And so they put the program guide out on this team that was perennially ranked and is always in the top. And he puts these two walk-ons in the cover. Well, they were seniors, and Dean Smith talked about, I just wanted to honor these guys. They're seniors. Doesn't matter if they're walk-on, they're on our team, they're seniors. So the season goes on. North Carolina wins the national championship. Let's see our boy Scott Cherry, the other picture. So North Carolina wins the national championship. Here is Scott Cherry. You know how many minutes he played in the national championship game? Zero. He had as much hope of getting on that court as I did sitting on my couch. There was no chance he was getting on that team. And the poor guy, I mean, just, I hope he's, I, he would never hear this, but poor dude, he just had like giant ears, big red hair. He just did not look like a superstar, right? And they win the national championship. They beat Michigan. And I'm over there at the time. And they have this huge rally in the arena, and they bring thousands of people in there for the big celebration that they won the thing. And I remember being in there, and it was just like hopping and noisy, and it was so much fun. And everybody's yelling, and Dean Smith comes up and talks, this legendary Hall of Fame coach, and, and just talking. He goes to introduce the first of the players, and he could have called anyone up on that stage, and the place was ready to erupt. There was the seven-foot center, Eric Montross, who was like everyone in the country knew him. This dude was a beast. In one of the games against Duke, he got stitches at halftime, came back out, scored like 20 points. He was unbelievable. Um, or there was this freshman guy named Donald Williams who was the MVP as a freshman of the whole tournament, scored like 25 points. He was unbelievable. Throw stuff up from anywhere, just swish. That year, he stunk after that. But that year. So there were all these people. There was all of these guys he could have called up. And common sense would say, you get the guy everyone came to see. And the first guy he calls up to come and give a speech in front of 20,000 people there in the arena is Scott Cherry, the walk-on who did not play one minute in that tournament. And there was even a little bit of awkwardness, though everybody was excited. They still cheered and all this stuff. And then wouldn't you know, Billy Packer later is interviewing Dean Smith, and he does it again. It's like, why would you bring Scott Cherry up first? And there were several guys who had huge prominent roles and didn't even get to play, didn't get to speak at all. So why would you bring him up? And Dean Smith, I'll never forget it. He just looked at him and he goes, why wouldn't I? He just won the national championship. That was such a profound thing. Scott Cherry had value because he's part of a collective and part of a team. Didn't seem like he played a really important role, but see, Coach Smith knew how hard that guy worked in practice day after day. And yeah, maybe all the attention went to Eric Montross and Donald Williams, and they were the ones who were esteemed and put up there, but without the people to help them in practice, to push them, to yell from the sidelines and cheer and all those kind of things, it's not the same team. And they're not going to achieve the thing that the coach who had his plan and had his mission, and they bought in. 
They were fine with accepting their role wherever it might be, big or little. They bought into the plays that were laid out in the playbook and they bowed before the leadership of their coach and it was amazing what they were able to do. Guys, that's the church. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. He's given us an immaculate playbook. And to the extent that we are willing to to accept the roles that we have and to appreciate and encourage those who have different roles from us, to bow before our king, Jesus Christ, it's it's unbelievable what God can do through a church. So I want to encourage you guys, fight isolation. If you feel like, I don't know how to get plugged in, I don't know how to push in, I'm I'm not that guy that can just go up and start talking to people, then send me an email. Send the church an email. Give us a phone call. Let's get together and let's find ways, inroads. Huddle groups are perfectly designed for this very purpose. But we, as a church, have great need. There are a million holes to be filled. And not even just on the practical get things done end of things. Like, I need to be able to humble myself and connect with people and learn from the things that God has. I don't care if you've been saved one day, you bring something to the table. If if for no other reason than because you have the spirit of God in you. I don't expect that it's gonna be about you in the first place, it's all about him. He is the creator, he is the architect, he is the contractor, and he's the power plant. But when we're disconnected, You'll never get the opportunity to see what God might do through those who will humble themselves before his leadership. Let's pray that for our church. Will you guys stand with me? Sam's going to come up and close us in some worship, but let's just pray as he makes his way up here. Lord, first of all, we declare once again, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour we need you. You're our defense. You're our righteousness. God, we need you. And God, we are aware that collectively the body of Christ is the manifestation of Jesus in the world around us. And so I pray, God, that you would help our church to grow. I don't mean numerically necessarily, though, God, we always pray that our family would grow, that people would come to a saving knowledge of you. But God, I pray that everyone that is here would find a role within the body of Christ. Lord, I pray against spirits of isolation, whether it be for inferiority or superiority. And I pray, God, that your spirit would continue to move, that we would allow you, God, to just have your own way with us, that you would arrange us how you see fit, that we would be humble to allow you to do such a thing. I pray, God, that you would not allow Satan who wants to just puff us up so that he might destroy us. I pray, God, instead that you would give us that spirit of humility that you might be the one who exalts. I pray, God, that in the work that we do, in the things that we take on, God, that your spirit would empower them and that you would be the one that gets the glory. Because, God, we're just so thankful to be on your team. Lord, we're so thankful that you would call the likes of us. We're below the walk-ons, Lord. We've failed you and we have no right or ability. There's no righteousness in us apart from filthy rags, God. And yet you would call us to serve you, to serve with you, to be part of your team, to be part of your mission. And I just pray, God, that there wouldn't be a soul in here that feels like there's not a place that they can fit. I pray, God, that there would be contentment amongst all of us for what you have called us to be. 
and that there would be security in our identity as children of God. I pray, God, for patience as we continue to grow as a church. And I pray, God, that your spirit would be a part of everything that we do, Lord. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would just come upon us fresh and new, direct us, teach us, correct us, change us, and grow us. And I pray, God, that we would keep our eyes upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith. So we commit this time to you, Lord, even as we worship, will you just speak to our hearts and encourage us and comfort us in Jesus' name. It's all you are thirsty. It's all who are we. Come to the fountain. Dip your heart in the streams of life, the pain and the sorrow, and be washed away in the waves of His mercy. His deep cries out to Thee, sing, Parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, but on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, to which our presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. God, I pray that this would be to an increasing degree at all times, the truth of this church. Of all churches, yes, but God, you have ordained and composed and arranged this group of people for such a time as this. I pray, God, for a greater spirit of unity within this church than we've ever had. I pray, God, against pride and against isolation. And I just pray, God, that there would be this sense, Lord, just this joy and just the opportunity to be on your team. Lord, I thank you so much that, that you've had <laughs> sort of a take your daughter, take your son to work day. Lord, there's really nothing of ourselves that we can contribute of any lasting emphasis. And yet, Lord, you take us by the hand and you allow us the joy of serving with you. I pray, God, that more and more people here in this church would experience that. And I pray, God, for opportunities to plug more and more people in. But Lord, in all these things, we pray that you would be the one that gets the glory. May this all be done just so your name is proclaimed. May this all be done that more people come to an understanding of you. May this all be done that we can grow in our appreciation and love of you, not that we make much of some building or some organization. So God, we pray, our creator, our contractor, our architect, will you build your church and build the people in it. In Jesus' name. Let's sing that again. I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you Every hour I need you My one difference, my righteousness Oh, God, how I need you Lord, I need you Oh, I need you bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.